we, we did a study, a scientific study on our home, on the furniture in our home. This is the findings. I want to describe for you the process by which uh, the history of our home furnishings was excavated. <clears throat> Some archaeologists came in, they did a dig, and this is what they have found. The earliest record of furniture in my household uh, belongs to a period they call the early matrimonial period. And during this period, what they found is from the archaeological record is that all the furniture there is of very poor quality. It was either either given to us or borrowed. Um, massive uh, percentage of most of it is made out of cardboard or particle board covered with cloth. And there are a very few exceptions to that. There are a few things that appear to have been gifts that may actually be of some enduring value. But for the most part, the early matrimonial period, there was, there was barely any record surviving. Above that on the mound, in the dig, they, they, they found another uh, epic in the household, and they called this the Broke Lieutenant Ozoic Era. And in this era as they kind of look through the rubble, what they found is, is this is the first sign that things were actually being purchased, like thoughtful purchasing for the household, but it was still very cheap. The origin of most of the artifacts come from flea markets and, or craft shows, and almost all of it came out of Mississippi. That's where we were at the time. But what's interesting is, this is the first time that artwork begins to surface in the record. Is this the first time they, they find artwork in the home? Um, but they classify the artwork as motel art. And, and, and this, is, this is why. This is why it's motel art. It's because they think, this is their theory, that at this early stage in this people's history together, they had no story of their own. They had really nothing to talk about. They had no children. You know, there was barely anything going on in their life. But they had white walls, so they needed to put stuff on the walls, and so essentially they put it up with cheap stuff because they were broke. That is the broken Lieutenant Ozoic era. This is the first hint of Ikea. shows up right here <laughs> in, in this area. Now above that, above that era is this third epic. And this epic is so extensive that they've broken into three tiers. There is the early, middle, and late period of this era. It's called the home era. And in the early home era, this is the first time that, that we as a family actually purchased a home. And so what you begin to see in this, and you may identify with some of this, when you finally purchase the home, this is the first time there's any real intentional thoughtfulness to how you furnish it. Because it's yours. And because you hope to be there a while. And so now you're actually thinking about color coordination and, and matching and this is the first time in this, in this uh, early home era, this is the first time that this really something interesting happens. Let me see if it's written right. The cycling out of old furniture and the bringing in of new furniture. This is the first time that happens where it's actually an out with the old and an in with the new kind of trend. Now, you wonder why that happens. The scientists, archaeologists, and anthropologists have got together. They have a number of reasons. One is because the early matrimonial period was of such poor quality that it really was working just to get it six or seven years into the marriage. And so it has 
beginning to decay and needs to be replaced. That's one reason. Two is the tastes begin to develop among the couple. That You need to be married for a while to figure out who you are. Are you contemporary or are you early American or these sorts of things. By the time you're six or seven years into the marriage, you've settled some of those things and you know what kind of people you are. We are colonial people. Not only that, it's at this point that meaning begins to be, uh, they find that meaning is attached to objects. This is the point where things that the anthropologists would have certainly thought would have been cycled out because of its grotesque nature, some of them have remained because they just have personal attachment. We have a green chair. It's a cushion chair. It, it's heinous. I think it's heinous, but I love it. It was given to us. We didn't pay a dime for it. Who would? It was, it's just ugly. It fits no period. Even the Brady Bunch family would have thrown it out. But I can't let it go. It, it's, I almost feel like eh, it just needs to be there. And, and that's what happens is, so you see the cycling out of some things, but you see some things remain, things which aren't essential, things which don't really have any intrinsic value to the function of the home. It's not like a couch or a dinner table or kitchenware. It isn't those things, but they're just things that have grown um, certain kinds of attachments. All that's to say... Um, it's curious how we come to these kinds of decisions with our furniture, our household. What do we keep? What do we throw away? What do we cycle out? What do we update? Those sorts of things. Why? What is the thought process that goes into it? And, and there's a whole host of reasons. Fashion, income level, circumstances. Are you upsizing? Are you downsizing? You know, when we have more money, we can buy nicer things. So we do buy nicer things. Sometimes, though, that necessity downsizes us. Maybe we lose a job or our house gets flooded or some kind of catastrophe or there's a divorce or whatever it is and you find yourself starting over and what was once a nice home dwindles away. And it's funny that when, you, when, when necessity hits, what you think is essential begins to change. Like I, we have a, an heirloom, a family heirloom. By the way, heirlooms first enter in in the, first, in the home period because none of your family begins to pass away until then. Then they creep in. But we have this, this dinner dining room set that is very meaningful to us. It was in my grandparents' home. Um, but if, if necessity hit and I had to choose, I would choose my pillow over my dining room table because I don't need a dining room table. There's a lot of other tables, but I need my pillow. Um, I won't get to sleep without my pillow. So... So it's interesting what becomes significant. And there's also this interesting question of what's universal. You know, different places um, have some of similarities, but a lot of differences. So what items of furniture are universal across, you know, across the globe? Does, does every people group have a dining room table? Well, no, no, they don't. But I would generally say most every people group has some concept of a chair. We have some kind of notion that it's convenient not to always sit on the ground. Or you'll notice we don't all have beds. Beds are not a global reality, but some kind of mat is at least the universal attitude of, I'd rather not sleep on the ground if I can't help it. I have a wooden block at home from my time in East Africa. It's a pillow. It's a wooden block. It has a little, little cut like that, and that's their pillow, and they can carry it around with them. But it's wooden. 
took me hours in the market to figure out what it was. And then I had to buy it because I thought it was so cool. So how is it that we make these decisions? What I want to do this morning is we're going to end up here. I'm putting the question, the big questions out front. We're going to kind of go on a meandering journey that's going to bring us back to these questions. But I want us to apply them to the church. If we think about the church in the sense of the ideas and the things we do and the constructs that are in the church as the furniture, the furnishings of the church, what in our church is essential? What's nice to have? What's cardboard that's waiting to get cycled out with something nicer? What if we actually had to downsize? If we had to go mobile tomorrow in some great persecution, would we have to bring with us? I don't mean material. I mean ideologically. What would we have to be? What can we let go for the sake of the community of faith? What do we have to hold on to? And how do we make these decisions? These decisions are not easily made. They're, they're made under great pressure and great tension. And sometimes, like your own home, we fill it up with things that we think are all that important, and they're really not. And how do we go about kind of spring cleaning or making ourselves more lean for the kingdom? That's, that's where we're going to end this morning. With that said, if you'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, which if you're using one of ours in the seats, it's 695, page 695. I said we're going to meander there because we, we are. It, it, this issue does not surface immediately as the issue but it is, it's almost always where, where this kind of thinking will end up. And so we're, we're, we're on our way there. Mark 2, verses 18 to 22 is our reading this morning. But we're going to do it in two parts. The Pharisees are about to ask Jesus a question. And we're going to kind of answer that question all by itself. We're just going to just understand what Jesus means in his response to the question. Then we're going to read the second part, 21 and 22, which is Jesus not answering the question but responding to the kind of spirit that would ask the question. So that's what we're going to do. Verse 18 to 20, if you'll read with me. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day, they will fast. Why are you not fasting, is the question of the Pharisees. They want to know, they want to know that. And, and why, I'm not quite sure why they want to know that. I, I sometimes think maybe it has to do with a question of devotion. Like they're looking at Jesus not fasting, and they're wondering, are he, is he as religiously serious as we are? Is he devoted to the kinds of things we're devoted to? Why, why is he not fasting? Does he not take our, the, the peril of our kingdom seriously? Does he not take sinfulness seriously? So maybe it's an issue of devotion, but maybe it's also a question of the movement of Jesus. Like, it, how is his movement different from theirs? Maybe that's got their mind working. Like, we're fasting, and even John's disciples are fasting. Is Jesus really on the same sheet? Of music? Is he, is he on his own thing? What's going on? And I'm not sure exactly what it is that they recognize, but they see that he has a different perspective on things, and they want to talk about this difference. They want to know why the difference, and that's when Jesus responds with this image of the bridegroom and the guests, which I think is only really understood if we understood, understand what it means to fast. So let me describe that a little bit. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, uh, we, we encouraged you to take some time fasting. It was not with this message in mind. It was on its own accord. 
but you may have gained some of your own insight about this. But here is, here is the nature of fasting. And, and it, it may be a little different in the ancient Near East than it has evolved in the church. But this is generally what fasting is. Fasting is a time of drawing close to the Lord. And when you, when you fast, you're reaching out for the Lord. You're trying to draw closer because there's something on your heart that you can't get off your heart. That's oftentimes the issue. You're seeking God's face because you're heavy laden with the things of the kingdom. The Lord, your life, your family, something. There's a problem. So oftentimes in fasting, there is an issue over which you're fasting or there's a spirit of confession. A lot of times in fasting, even if you don't set out to find yourself confessional, confession comes out of an emptying of yourself, right? The idea of fasting, you empty of yourself so that you can fill yourself with God. And in any time we necessarily empty ourselves of ourselves, confession is part of that. It's part of the cleansing process of realizing all the things in us that have gotten in the way of seeking the Lord's face. And so all of that to say is that fasting is heavy. It's a very sober time. It isn't a kind of a moment of celebration. You will never see us say, come on down Thursday night and we'll all gather, gather around for a big congregational fast. Nobody would come. It's just not fun. It's, it's not the kind of thing you do. What you do is you gather as a body when you break the fast to celebrate. That's when we gather. We gather, we gather when we celebrate breaking a fast. So in a way, when we fast, it's kind of our way of saying things are not as they, should be, as they should be. And if only God were here, if only God would speak, he could make things right. That's the purpose of the fast. That's why they're fasting here. Which is why Jesus says to them, why would my disciples fast? See, everybody else is saying, if only God were here, if only God would come, they're waiting with this anticipation. Their fast is an act of anticipation for what it might, for to call God, Lord, bring your kingdom here, usher in your kingdom, deliver us from evil, do these sorts of things. And Jesus says, now why would my disciples do that? Why in the world would my disciples fast and mourn and confess and pray to a God as if, if, if only God were here when I am here? The I am is here. Why would he fast? So that's, that's the way Jesus responds to that question. But he backs it up with this, this second part. He says, by the way, a time will come. He says, my disciples don't fast right now because the bridegroom is among them. This is a time of celebration. It's a time of recognizing that, that, that the centerpiece of the faith is there, that God is present, that if there's an issue, the disciples don't need to go away into a garden and and, and beg the Lord, they can turn to Jesus and they can say, ah, my uncle's sick. That's, that's a prayer. If Jesus is here, that's what praying is. If Jesus was in the room, would I actually say, let's close in prayer? I think, I think we would turn to Jesus. If it was a time of intercessory prayer, we'd all get in the line and we'd walk over to Jesus and say, this is what's on my heart, Jesus. Because the bridegroom is among us. But Jesus says, there will come a time, there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away from you, and on that day you will, you will fast. On that day my disciples will fast. And certainly he's pointing towards 
the crucifixion that he's about to endure. He's certainly got that in mind. Of On that day, there'll become a time when Jesus is literally taken away from them, is put on the cross, is crucified, and, and on that day there will be great mourning and great fasting that will occur. But I think there is a broad, much broader meaning to this which applies to the church, which is this. Is Jesus, is the bridegroom here or isn't he? He's not here. Now we have this, we have this hope, so let's not forget, we have this hope and this security, but is he here? He's not here. He's not in this room. When you have something heavy in your heart, it does require prayer and fasting to get it off and to give it to the Lord. These things, we have to seek the Lord. Why? Because we have to seek the Lord because He's not easily found. We have to approach Him because because He's not among us. Who's the prince of this world right now? Is it Jesus? No. The prince of this world is Satan. So we live right now even in a time of anticipation. A time when we know things are not as they should be. We wish that if God were here, He would make all things right, and we're looking forward to the day that that is going to be the case. In fact, Revelation 21, the book of Revelation, so the Bible ends with this image. The Bible ends with the image of Jesus Christ proclaiming the church as His bride and wedding Himself to her. 21, 1 through 5 says, and John says, And I looked and I saw coming out of heaven a new city of Jerusalem that was arrayed as a bride. That's God's people arrayed as a bride. And it's at this point that Jesus himself says, Now I will be with men. We will always be together. There will be no more mourning, no more suffering, no more lamentation, nothing. He says, I am making everything new. That wedding ceremony is coming. So we have forward, we can look forward to that. And so there's a certain sense in which we live in this moment of anticipation where we feel the hardship of life, we feel the evils of this world, but we have a hope. It's the kind of hope where Paul says this, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. Perplexed but not despaired, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Paul is expressing this idea of we have a hope and anticipation, but Jesus is not I think the best way to understand it is to think of ourselves as betrothed to Christ right now, but not married to Him. So I, I, the engagement is not the right idea. Betrothal is a better idea. We're betrothed to Christ, so we're secure that one day there will be a wedding, right? If, if we're, if we're uh, you know, the woman, the church is the woman, we're not hoping one day to maybe meet Jesus. We've met Him, and He likes us. We're betrothed. And in betrothal, which is different than engagement, in betrothal, you are under contractual covenant to get married. That's the difference between that and engagement. Engagement, you say, hey, would you marry me? And she says, yes. But those things break all the time. And the betrothals, particularly in, the, in this ancient Near East time frame, if you got betrothed and then broke it, that, you required a divorce. A full-fledged divorce to break the betrothal. So there's an actual covenant at that point. There's also, a, a, um, the price is agreed upon for the, for, for the redemption of the wife. Is the, the, the husband's family, the groom's family would go, and they would discuss, because the family with the, with the bride is about to give over an entire member of their family of great value. 
And so the groom agrees upon the price. And you know what the groom says? The groom says this. Something to the street. I'm going to go home. I'm going to prepare my house. I'm going to prepare my father's house so that I can come back and so that we can be married. And he would go home. He would go to his father's house and they would begin to build a room off the house because the nuclear family would just stretch out that way. And so the father's house would be here and his son with his wife would be here and his other son and their wife would be there. And that's how the household will build. In fact, it sounds almost like this. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. It's matrimonial language. We are now betrothed to Jesus. We're covenanted with him, but we have not been united with him. And, and, and so what Jesus is saying, Jesus, his response to the, for the Pharisees is, right now, whenever, whenever Jesus is among us, there should be no concern. There should be no concern. But, but during the times when Jesus is away, hardship will fall, and fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord will be fully appropriate. Now, that, that's the question. That's the question the Pharisees had. That's the response that Jesus gave them. But what, what's more peculiar about this reading is, is this next passage, which is where Jesus responds to why they even asked the question. Let me read it, because it does not seem immediately related. Mark, Mark puts it here, but it's not immediately obvious as to why he puts it here. Look at 21. Right after Jesus talks about the bridegroom and the guests, he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an, on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, if Jesus is trying to respond to the same question, none of that makes any sense. What I think Jesus is doing is he's kind of going around the corner and he's looking at why would the Pharisees ask this question in the first place? What would make the Pharisees look over at Jesus at something he's not doing and actually come to him and say, why are you not fasting? What's going on in their heart that would make them say this? And here's what I think he's saying. This is what I think he means by this in very simple terms. Jesus is saying this. You cannot simply fit me into a pre-existent religious system. That's the idea he's getting across. Is the Pharisees are trying to understand how is Jesus jiving with the Jewish system of belief? And they, and they can't make him fit. They can't understand, you know... It pushes at them and it pulls at them every time he does something like this. It's not quite right. And what Jesus is saying is, look, every time you try to take me and plug me into Judaism, you will get frustrated. It will not work. It will, it will, I will wreck your system if you put me in it. What they wanted to do is they, they wanted to think, what part of Judaism does Jesus fit? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? Is he a teacher? Is he a rabbi? Is he a good man? Is he a good teacher? Is he a heretic? Is he a deliverer? What exactly is he? And Jesus said, stop trying to weasel me into the faith. How about you put the faith in me? Take Judaism and push it into Christ. Don't take Christ 
and push it into Judaism. That's the issue here. He's saying, when you do that, when you try to push me into it, I will ultimately frustrate the system. But he's not simply a new teaching. He's a radical new teaching. He doesn't simply say, don't put an old, a new patch on an old garment because it won't look nice. He says, don't put a new patch on an old garment because it will tear the old garment even worse. Don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Why? Not because it will make the wine taste bad, because it will break the wineskin. And everything will spill out and you'll have nothing. Jesus is not just new, he's radically new. Now, I want to I talk about this a little bit in a, in a thoughtful, teachy kind of way, but let me, we'll get through some conviction here first, because I think this is true. This is true with Christ and Judaism. I believe this is true with, with Christ and the church today, and we'll talk about this in a second, but I think it is certainly true with Christ and you. I think it is certainly true that Jesus will never reconcile with your attempt to make him have a place in your heart. If that's your faith, if that's your understanding of the faith, that I want to invite Jesus into my heart and so that he'll have a place there. I have my, my family, my heart for the family. That's you know the pie chart of your heart. 23.5% of your heart is for work. 43.5%, I can't do the math. Some other percent is for family. You got this other place where certain days on Sundays or holy days, you, you're, you're faithful or in your life group or your Sunday school, that's when the word is relevant to your life. That's when you kind of shift gears. If that's what you're doing, I think Jesus would say, you are sewing me onto your old garment. And I'll wreck it. There's no way that I can live at peace in your old body, in your old soul, your old wineskin, where you want to pour me in and not have me wreck it. Jesus didn't come to be part of your life. Jesus didn't come to to fill the, the thing that's missing. Jesus came so that you could be part of his life. The issue is not, do we, do, do we graft Jesus into our life? Do we, do we graft him onto us? The issue is, do we graft ourselves into the vine of Christ? Which means everything, everything, the whole pie, the whole pie, work, family, hobby, friends, all of the things, all of that happens within the life of Christ. It isn't the life of Christ in your hobbies. It's the Christian life which is absolutely pervasive. You know, I grew up, I grew up hearing that kind of sermon. And every time I'd hear it, I'd be like, how am I doing that? How am I doing that? And, and so part of me didn't want to say it again because I'd heard it so many times. But I thought every time someone said it to me, I'd ask, how am I doing that? So how are you doing that? We have to assume the likeness of Christ in everything. And that, that takes a life. That takes a lifetime. Maybe we do sew him onto our old garment and we do let him rip us apart. Maybe that's, maybe that's how it just ends up happening. But I'm here to say the Christian walk is not that simple. But if you do it the wrong way, it will push you and it will pull you and it will tear you. It will break you open. It's not easy. Well, that is the convictional part. I, I, want to, I want to stop now. 
I want to change gears a little bit, and I want us to think kind of with the mind of the church for a second. Because invariably, invariably, whenever we approach passages about the radical nature of Jesus Christ, especially in today's age, the radical nature of of Christ and the way He wants to change the church, those of us who love the word radical, which were children of the 80s, you know, rad, awesome. Those of us who kind of like those notions, we're like, yeah, down with old stuff. Those of us who hate the word radical say, oh no, what about my old stuff? And and it's difficult for us to understand wisely what it means to be radical. Because this is the way, this is the way it works with the church, I think. Jesus is a never-aging wine. There's no point in the history of, of, of humanity where Jesus will become an old story. He is, remember the, the miracle of the wine? He makes the wine and it is, it is instantly the best wine in the house. I think Jesus, from the moment he's the wine being poured into the wineskin, is life-giving, is without flaw, is perfect, is awesome, is exactly the kind of wine, no different. He's always new. He's always being renewed. He's always the right wine. The problem is, is he's poured himself into the church, and I think the church, over time, gets old and hard. The modes of the church, the structure of the church, it gets old and hard, then what happens is the new wine in an old wineskin begins to push on it. Or the new patch. Jesus Christ is always a new patch of cloth. But the, the, the greater garment to which he's in, coming to gets old. And so what ends up happening is the church goes through these cycles where it, it groans under the pressure of becoming old even though Christ in it is new. And you see this. The great schism in, in what we call the towards the end of the Roman era, the great schism of the church, that to me is the wineskin bursting open. That to me is is Jesus saying, the church is too hard. And breaking open, the Reformation is another one of these. These these things happen over time. And and, and right now, whether you believe it or not, right now, many people think we are in one of these times. We are in one of these times when people are asking fresh questions about the church, and when they're looking at old structures and they're calling them into suspicion as a default. I have a, a series of books here. I, almost all of these have been written within the decade. Most of these have been written in the past five years. And millions of copies of some of these have sold. This one, millions have sold. Let me just listen to the titles. And, and there's a spectrum here. So you, Some of you have read them and I'm not busting on these books. Some of them are good. Some of them should be burned. Uh, but just listen to the titles. A New Kind of Christian. Crazy Love. Radical. The Irresistible Revolution. Everything Must Change. That's the, that's the language right now that, that... That's the prophetic voice right now among the church. That you read these, these, these sound prophetic. You don't read these for devotion. These sound like a prophet's voice calling the church to repentance and renewal and, and to embrace the radical nature of Jesus and to remind ourselves that we are a vessel that is carrying a very dangerous truth, which is the truth of Christ. And we have to be careful how we do this. And so the challenge, and this is where I'm going to end this morning, is 
with a thoughtful challenge of, of trying to think, how do we understand radical within the church? Because for some of us, radical means less. Throw stuff out. Burn books, throw furniture away. Let's minimalize ourselves. And others of us understand radical as fight for what's right. And so here's some principles. This, this is not exciting. This is not exciting stuff. But I do think I want to recruit you to help me think with me because it's happening in our time. It isn't just happening to pastors. Ideas that come into the church come in through its members. And so the way I want us to think about this is, is in the church, in our church, what kind of idea furniture is all that important? Like, if the ideas in our church, the different things we did, if it was furniture, if it was the furniture of our house, you know, the, the kind of we've garnered over the years and we filled the house of God up with these, all these different ideas, which ones of them are all that important and which ones aren't that important? Which ones, you know, are, are simply here because of our wealth? Which ones are simply here because they have meaning? They really are bad ideas. They should be gone, but we are so attached to them. We can't even figure out a good reason why we're attached to them. We just like them. What, idea, what, what, what ideological furniture would we, would we go to the death for, to hold on to, to say, without this, this is not a home? And what pieces should never have even been here in the first place? That's what I want. I want to encourage you to begin asking on a regular basis as we, we think together for the church. Here's very short, um, some principles that I think are useful to thinking about this thing. First of all, I keep in mind the centrality of Christ. Whenever you're dealing with an idea, whether foreign or native in the church, when you're approaching an idea in the church, compare it to the centrality of Christ. Meaning, look at the work of Christ, what he's done, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the salvation that comes through him, the fact that he's paid for our sins, he's atoned for us. All of these ideas, his divinity and his humanity, his perfection, his omniscience, the fact that he's with living, sitting with the Father right now in heaven, the fact that he'll come again, Take all of that and put the idea that's in mind against it. Does it tamper with that idea or does it edify that idea? Because that is the wine, not the wineskin. And these are some structural, I just brainstormed some structural elements that come directly from the life of Christ. These are the things that Christ instituted, that Christ established, that Christ has given meaning to, and that Christ sustains the church. Baptism, prayer, Lord's Supper, just to name a few. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Jesus says, you need to be baptized. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. All of those he instituted himself, those float around in the wine of Christ. So any idea that would push against it, I would call heretical. Number two, recognize ageless constants. What, what ideas have kind of an ageless constancy about them? Um, that no matter how far back you look in the history, these kinds of furniture have always been in the church. So it's not necessarily immediately attached to Christ, but it's just always been in the house of God. Here's a few examples. Songs, singing, congregational gatherings, teachings, the use of Scripture. On these things, we really can't find any consistent examples of healthy surviving churches that have not had these 
and have thrived. These seem to be faithful constants within the church. But likewise, on these constants, recognize the fact that each one of them is constantly changing. So they're constantly there, but they're always changing. So there's always been singing in the church, but it has, was it these songs? I mean, we learned a new one today. The church was not singing 100 years ago what we're singing today, and 200 years ago they weren't singing what they were singing 100 years ago. And 500 years ago they weren't even singing in English or using organs. You know, you go back and back and back, and pretty soon it's chanting, and then we don't even know what it was, and sometimes we look in Scripture and go, is that a song or not? So the songs have always been there, but they're constantly being changed. They're being cycled out. Congregational gatherings, the size of the facility, is it a gymnasium, is it a cathedral, is it a house? It's constant that we gather, but it is not a constant on what that gathering looks like. The teaching, what translation of scripture? Do you use the King James Version? Do you use the NIV Version? Do you use reading English? What language is it in? What, these sorts of things. The, the scriptures are constant. The translation, there's freedom on. And then finally, and I'll close with this, we should observe the source of the idea that is pushing on the church. So when change comes, and when change is pushing and trying to enter itself into the life of the church, it matters, it should matter to us, where is this emphasis coming from? Because there's two forces of change that are always pushing on the church. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's the first force. But what? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test. So the world is pushing, saying, conform to the pattern. Christ is saying, be transformed, be transformed, be transformed. Both of those are, this one is making the church new, this one is making the church old. And we need to identify, where is the source of that? Where is the source of the idea of change? Is it coming from Christ? Is it coming from honest questions within the community? Or is it the agenda of the world going, why do you guys look so different? You know, you'd have more people here if you didn't do that you'd have a lot more people there if you didn't read that. What is the source of the change? There has to be a vessel. The church is the vessel that holds the wine of Christ. We carry it. We deliver it. We pour it out on mankind. God has given the church this responsibility. It's our job to make sure the wineskin remains new for his labor.